You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. This episode will tell you two things about me. One, I am of Ukrainian descent. Show me someone with a ko, K-O on the end of their name, or a last name ending in chuk, and I know I have found one of my people. And two, growing up, I played hockey. I had a multi-year love affair with the sport, playing ice hockey in a girls' league and following the Detroit Red Wings obsessively for much of the late 80s and early 1990s. Unfortunately, I moved on to other things about the same time the Wings started winning the Stanley Cup, but that's just the way things work out sometimes. If you have a look at the back catalog of Already Gone, you'll see that early on I produced an episode about the wildlife and tragic death of NHL player Brian Spinner Spencer. I found Spencer's case interesting on several levels, but the link to hockey is what drew me in. There aren't a lot of mysteries associated with professional hockey, at least not many that I am aware of. If you know of some, please send them my way, because I'd love to take a look at them. Last year, just before the December holidays, a Canadian friend asked me if I'd ever heard of a guy named Bill Barilko, and aside from immediately recognizing him as one of my people, no, I wasn't familiar with his name. My friend Murray informed me that in the 40s and 50s, Bill Barilko played for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Barilko, a defenseman, was one of the team's rising stars, best known for scoring the winning goal in overtime during the Stanley Cup Finals in 1951. Barilko's name and face splashed across headlines all over Canada. All that notoriety and success, and then Bill Barilko disappeared. I was intrigued. What do you mean he disappeared? Well, Barilko went missing. He was just gone. And once he was gone, the Leafs stopped winning the Stanley Cup. Oh, he said, one more thing. And then he told me that the Canadian rock band, The Tragically Hip, wrote a song about Barilko, a song called 50 Mission Cap. Hook, line, and sinker. Murray had me, and I knew I would write about Bill Barilko, a hockey player from a small town in Ontario who disappeared for a decade and then some, taking the success of the Toronto Maple Leafs with him when he went. So come with me to the 1951 Stanley Cup Finals, when an overtime goal turns a young man from Ontario into a hockey legend. William Bill Barilko was one of three children born into a family in northern Ontario. He had a brother, Alex, and a sister, Anne. His mother, Faye Barilko, watched over the three children while their father worked in the nearby mines. Bill set himself apart from other children at a young age. In 1938, when he was just 11 years old, a child riding his bicycle across a frozen lake was plunged into the frigid waters when the ice cracked beneath him. Showing no fear, Bill ran across the ice, reaching for the boy as he struggled to keep his head above water. 
Bill grabbed him and pulled the older child to safety. Bill would later laugh and say he thought that was his own brother, Alex, who's almost drowned, which is what propelled Bill across the ice, risking his own neck to save him. It was just a few years later when Bill, who played ice hockey like so many of his friends, was picked to play for one of the better midget teams in the area. In 1945, when Bill was just 17, he was picked up by the Hollywood Wolves, a Los Angeles-based hockey team of the Pacific Coast League. The Wolves were the Toronto Maple Leafs minor league affiliate from 1944 until 1947. Bill found Los Angeles to be a totally different world from what he left behind in Canada. He found himself in a world of ice and sun, lots and lots of sun, Timmons' winters could be brutal, with the mercury dipping below zero in the winter, and even summer temperatures were among coldest in that region. Celebrities lurked around every corner in Hollywood. Bill and his teammates played as stars like Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra watched from the stands. While the Wolves' coach, former Maple Leaf Bob Gracie, pushed his players hard, off the ice, you'd find the members of the team soaking up some sunshine. In a 1946 news article, one of Barilko's teammates in Los Angeles, Harry Hilliard, he described their time with the Wolves as, quote, wonderful, swell, great. Quote, imagine going to the rink in your shirt sleeves after lying around on the beach all morning. This was something most kids from Ontario could only dream of. In addition to having stars watching them perform on the ice, Bill and his Wolves teammates had their pictures taken with Vera Ellen, a Hollywood dancer and actress. She was the team's official mascot. Those were the days. Bill's father, Steve Barilko, lived to see his son's success with the Wolves, but passed away in 1946, before Bill Barilko got the call every young man playing minor league hockey hopes for. His ticket to the show. Alex Barilko, Bill's older brother, was also playing hockey, but he didn't have the success that Bill did. Despite their differing achievements, the brothers remained close and on good terms. It was February of 1947 when 19-year-old Barilko moved up to the National Hockey League, and not just any team in the Big Six, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Barilko played his first NHL game at the Montreal Forum on February 6, 1947. The Forum A 9,300-seat arena was an intimidating place for a seasoned player to play. I can only imagine Barilko's opening night jitters as he took the ice. And if he had any anxiety about his new role as NHL defenseman, it didn't show up in his performance. Barilko's playing style helped him earn a spot on the roster. The Leafs had a lot of injuries late in the season, and they needed a couple of sturdy defensemen to round out the lineup. Barilko was just what they were looking for. He wasn't the most talented player, but he was hardworking, determined, and reliable. As an aside to the story, if you're not a hockey fan or are not familiar with the history of hockey, in the late 40s and early 1950s, none of the players in the NHL wore helmets, not even the goalie, and this led to some interesting, horrifying, and tragic events during gameplay. Barilko would play for the Leafs, wearing sweater, or jersey if you prefer, number 21. In 1947, 
the Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup, and Bastion Bill Barilko, a kid from a mining town in northern Ontario, had his name engraved on the Stanley Cup for the first time. But it wouldn't be the last. The young defenseman was called up at the right time because the Leafs were on a tear and they were dominating the NHL. The Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup in 1947, 1948, and 1949. They were the first NHL franchise to win the Stanley Cup in three consecutive seasons. In 1950, the Cup went to my hometown team, the Detroit Red Wings. The Wings had to get past the Maple Leafs to compete against the New York Rangers in the Stanley Cup Finals that year, and the Red Wings roster featured two of my favorites, Ted Lindsay and Gordie Howe. A well-known goalie of that era was Terry Sawchuk. But Sawchuk was not net for the Red Wings at that point. He'd been sent to Indianapolis to help the Capitals in their quest to win the Calder Cup. Terry Sawchuk died an untimely death in 1970. Perhaps we will discuss his story in a future episode. Living in Toronto in the big city, Bill wasn't alone. His brother Alex came to Toronto and the pair opened up a shop, Barilco Brothers Appliances, on the Danforth. They sold refrigerators and televisions, and the shop was like a small department store. In the 1950-51 season, Bill Barilko was an integral part of the Maple Leafs. No longer a wide-eyed rookie, he'd spent a few years in the NHL and knew his way around the ice. He'd also switched numbers again, starting out at 21, then wearing number 19, and in 1950 he switched to number 5. When the Leafs found themselves in the Stanley Cup Finals in April of 1951, Barilko was experienced and ready. The Leafs were leading the series against Montreal three games to one when Game 5 began, and when the third period ended with the score tied 2-2, two and two, tensions are running high. This was a sudden-death overtime, and the Cup is on the line for the Leafs. The Canadian press called Bashan Bill a slapshot specialist, and it was at the 2-minute, 53-second mark that Barilko fired a shot at the net, except it wasn't his well-known slapshot. This was a neat backhander, the puck flying past Montreal goalie Gary McNeil to clinch another championship for the Leafs. Sports writer Jim Amadeo would later refer to Barilko's overtime goal in 1951 as, quote, the most thrilling and dramatic goal in Leafs history. Fans watching and listening in Timmins, Ontario went wild with the news, taking to the streets to celebrate the accomplishments of their own Bill Barilko. The nearly 15,000 spectators on hand at Maple Leaf Garden got to see it happen live. In newspaper coverage of their Stanley Cup victory, I found a fabulous picture of Bill Barilko hoisted into the air by his teammates, a joyful young man with a promising career and everything going for him. With the season over for the summer, Barilko headed home, back to Timmins. I should mention that while hockey players were making a good living, they weren't earning huge salaries the way that athletes do today. For example, in the late 1940s, Gordie Howe, who is arguably one of the greatest hockey players of all time, he took home $5,000 a year from the Detroit Red Wings. That's the equivalent of making about $60,000 a year in today's dollars. Back in Timmins, Barilko settled into his childhood home and spent time with friends and family. 
In August of 1951, he made plans with Dr. Henry Hudson, his friend and a local dentist, to fly farther north and spend a few days fishing before he had to return to Toronto to prepare for the new season. Bill's mother, Faye Barilko, she had a bad feeling about this trip, and she told Bill not to go. She and Bill argued, and she said, Son, I have a bad feeling about this. Please, don't go. Bill reassured his mother, telling her there's nothing to worry about. They were going to fly up in Hudson's plane, a Fairchild 24, and they would go to Rupert House, a spot on the southern end of Hudson Bay in Quebec. Dr. Hudson and Barilko looked forward to a weekend of camping, fishing, and enjoying time spent in nature. Faye Barilko was furious with her son, and she was scared. She had a bad feeling about the trip. He shouldn't go. He should cancel his plans. But Bill shrugged off his mother's caution, telling her he'd be fine. He'd see her in a couple of days. His mother later told the press that when Bill came to her on Friday morning before he left, she didn't say goodbye, and she didn't ask if he'd packed matches or warm clothing. Faye even refused to pack his lunch, leaving that task for Bill's sister, Anne. Then they were gone. Hudson and Barilko took off. The small plane headed north for their retreat. I hope they had good fishing and good camping in the rugged north country of Quebec. The waters of Hudson Bay where they cast their lines, those waters lead out to the Arctic Ocean, making them brisk and cold even in the warmest month of the year. The men departed for home on Sunday, August 26, 1951. The flight south back to Timmins would take several hours, and the pair were last seen fueling up before the flight home. The people who interacted with them at the airstrip at Rupert House said the pair were in good spirits as they left, the yellow plane heading into the sky, taking her two passengers on a voyage that would take more than a decade to complete. And before we finish that trip, let's have a word from our sponsor. Barilgo and Hudson are expected back on Sunday, August 26th, and people in Timmins, including Bill's mother and sister, are waiting for them. They wait patiently, their eyes scanning the sky, but there is no sign of the Fairchild 24. When they don't arrive by Monday morning, Faye Barilko is inconsolable. She was sure that her premonition, that something would go terribly wrong, that the fear and dread that consumed her and made her beg her handsome blonde son not to take the trip, had materialized. Search teams went up, taking to the air and flying low over the path thought to have been taken by the duo. Over the next two months, the Canadian government spent hundreds of thousands of dollars looking for the missing athlete and Dr. Hudson. The search for Bash and Bill Barilko would be the most expensive in Canadian history, involving more than 1,300 hours of flying time and costing nearly $4 million in today's dollars. 52-year-old Faye Barilko took a flight to the north, hoping that her appearance would bring the searchers luck, much the way that her attendance at Billy's Games brought him luck. But it wasn't meant to be. There was no sign of her boy, no sign of Dr. Hudson, and no sign of the airplane. When Bill Barilko disappeared, so did the winning streak of the Toronto Maple Leafs. A team that brought home four Stanley Cups in five years found themselves shut out of the finals from 1952 to 1958. In 1952, their first year without Barilko, they didn't even make the playoffs. 
from 1953 to 56, they were eliminated in the semifinals. In the 57 and 58 seasons, they again did not make the playoffs. In 1959 and 1960, they made it all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals, only to lose to Montreal both years. And in 1961, the Leafs were knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. April of 1962, and the Leafs snapped their losing streak, defeating the Chicago Blackhawks in a six-game series to win the Stanley Cup once again. It seemed like things were finally looking up for the Maple Leafs. Whatever Bill Barilko took with him on that fateful flight a decade earlier, it had finally come back to his team and to the people of Ontario. On May 31, 1962, about six weeks after the Leafs took the Cup, Gary Fields, a pilot for Dominion Helicopter Services of Toronto, found himself off course while flying in northern Ontario. He'd been traveling over dense, swampy bushland when heavy winds shifted his flight path. Fields noted that he was about an hour north of Cochrane, which put him about 150 kilometers or 93 miles north of Timmins, the place Bill Barilko once called home. While getting his bearings, Fields spotted what appeared to be a yellow plane crashed in the bushland. He reached for his radio and reported what he'd seen to authorities. The Ontario Department of Lands and Forests loaded a crew into a helicopter and dropped two members of the Ontario Provincial Police into the area. And they made their way on foot to the wreckage. It was tough going. The searchers were armed with chainsaws and machetes, and they had to clear a path through the brush toward the wreckage. When they arrived on scene, they found the remains of a yellow Fairchild 42 aircraft, a partial registration number still visible. CFXT, Charlie Foxtrot X-Ray Tango. The registration confirmed the hopes of the searchers and brought long-awaited news to Timmins. After more than 10 years of searching and hoping, Bill Barilko and Dr. Hudson were no longer missing. In the wreckage, searchers discovered the skeletal remains of two bodies. The two men never made it out of the plane. They were still strapped in their seats, and it's likely that they died on impact. Hudson's plane, the yellow Fairchild 42, burned after the crash. Both the plane and her passengers showed damage from fire. Their gear and remnants from their time spent fishing were also found on scene. In the 11 years since Bill vanished, Faye Barilko's surviving children, Alex and Anne, moved on with their lives. Alex took a job in Montreal. Anne married, and her mother moved in with her daughter and son-in-law. Faye Barilko was 63 years old when her son's body was recovered, but her children worried about her ability to handle the news. In 1962, 63 years old was considered elderly, and they were concerned that this news would be a shock to her system that the discovery of her son's remains could literally kill her. Faye's surviving children had nothing to worry about. Faye Barilko would live into her 80s, passing away in 1982, more than 30 years after the disappearance and death of her son Bill. Bill Barilko, hometown hero, was laid to rest next to his father at the Timmins Memorial Cemetery in Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It wasn't lost on the locals that the Leafs finally won the cup again when Bill's body was recovered. In the months and years after his body was brought home, the story of Bashan Bill Barilko slipped quietly into the history books. His friends, family, and teammates all moved on without him. Until 1993, 
when a Canadian rock band, The Tragically Hip, released a song called 50 Mission Cap. The song is a tribute to Bill Barilko and introduced his story to a new generation. The lyrics talk about Barilko's winning goal, his disappearance, and the losing streak faced by the Leafs once he was gone. The song became so popular and so wide-reaching that the Maple Leafs still use it 25 years later as part of their pregame warm-up. The Scotiabank Arena, home of the Toronto Maple Leafs, has a banner featuring Barilko's picture and his number, 5, which was retired in 1951 after he vanished. When the tragically hip play the Scotiabank Arena, formerly known as the Air Canada Centre, all the hockey team's materials are taken down and put away, except for Barilko's banner. The one that features his name, sweater number, and picture, that stays in place during the concert. When 50 Mission Cap comes up in the set list, the crowd goes wild, singing along and pointing at Barilko's banner. In the 1990s, Bill's sister Anne, who was in her 60s at this point, heard about the band who immortalized her brother in song. She was living in Mississauga, a suburb of Toronto, when she heard that the Tragically Hip were playing the Hershey Center. Anne showed up at the center a few hours before the show and explained to the security team that she would like to meet them. She's the sister of Bill Barilko, and she wanted to talk to the people that wrote a song about him. Security did not believe her story, but Anne produced a birth certificate from her purse, and they hustled her backstage. Once she was backstage, she spent a few minutes talking with the musicians. They asked if she would please stay for the show, and Anne said no, she needed to get home and get dinner on the table. Their meeting was brief, and it was a humbling exchange of kindness and gratitude. Anne Barilko passed away in 2013 at age 82. She had mourned her brother for years, then spent many more years swapping stories and correspondence with hockey fans from across Canada and the world, keeping Bill's memory alive, remembering both her big brother and the talented athlete celebrated in Toronto. 50 Mission Cap, the song that brought Bill Barilko back from obscurity, was co-written by Gord Downey, the lead singer of The Tragically Hip. Downey died in 2017 at age 53 from glioblastoma, a form of brain cancer. And this episode is about two great talents, two good men, that we lost far too soon. And it is with music that we remember them both. Special thanks to Murray for telling me about Bill Barilko. And listeners, if you would like to learn more about Barilko's story, check out Kevin Shea's book, Barilko, Without a Trace. Listeners, it's a new year with new episodes, and if you haven't done so, please press that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you have questions, comments, or feedback about the cases discussed here, email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. If you'd like more information on the cases discussed each week, visit our website for photos and links to some of our research. Our website is alreadygonepodcast.com. If you still need more, join us on Facebook. You can follow Already Gone or join our discussion group to talk about episodes, what's new in true crime, or learn about other cases as they unfold. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Mm-hmm.